And welcome to Let's Get To. I'm your host, James Christopher, and we're out here at Homer Striker Field, home of your Kalamazoo Growlers, and we are waiting for the rain to, to not come. We have our fingers crossed, and he's behind me, isn't he? That's right. We've got a large grizzly bear behind us, the mascot of the Growlers. And if you're a How I Met Your Mother fan, you know that it's what Barney wanted at his wedding. He wanted a ring bear. I don't know. But this is the kind of thing you can expect out here at the ballpark. This place is fan-driven. It is fan-friendly from the beginning. It, it represents the team. Lots of neat stuff to do and look at. So we have a great show coming for you today. We have a lot of guests from uh, around minor league baseball. We've got to talk a little bit of baseball movies. And, of course, our look at the Kalamazoo Growlers. So stay with us. Welcome to Let's Get To, the baseball show from the fans' perspective. From the bleachers, the Let's Get To Game of the Week. So we're back here on From the Bleachers. We're having a great time in Kalamazoo. The ballpark looks great. Uh, we've got a great baseball game going. We can't wait to show you what we saw. We're going to see it first, record it, and then show it to you because that's how recorded media works. We pulled into Homer Striker Field hoping the rain would go away. We made the trip all the way from Austin, Texas and didn't want to dust off the old sometimes it rains joke. But today, it looked like the baseball gods were with us. The Kalamazoo Growlers play at Homer Stryker Field, named for a legendary amateur pitcher from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, who won a Big Ten title despite the lack of use of two of the fingers on his pitching hand. Today we were set for a tilt between the Growlers and their bitter rivals, the Battle Creek Bombers and the Bombers fans were representing. Homer Striker Field is a natural grass field with an old school, welcoming vibe. I just love the Growlers brand. From the colors to the fierce look of the Michigan Black Bear, it just works for me and feels a little different from some of the other current minor league mascots. Where some have gone goofy and overly cartoony, the Growlers take it seriously, and it works. We've said it before, and we'll say it again. We love the representation of the entire Northwoods League at the ballparks. Imagine if the MLB treated it as one league, and not three teams and 27 stepchildren. But I digress. One of my favorite features at this ballpark, or really any ballpark anywhere, a chainsaw sculpture of the Growlers logo. How cool is this? Props to the folks at Drenth Design for getting it done. The ballpark has a variety of seating options with several sections that are right on the playing surface. All around the diamond in the outfield, you're all up in the action. I can't remember another ballpark with this much seating right in the field. Even behind the concourse, no space is wasted. We love these banners which included best ballpark food, best beards in baseball, the distance between Northwoods League opponents, a banner tracking Homer Striker Stadium's improvements, one that tracks the history of the Growlers branding, 10 must-dos when seeing a Growlers game, a list of top 10 baseball movies, some prominent Northwoods League alums, including former Astro and still fan favorite Tony Kemp, best specialty jerseys for both the Growlers and the affiliated MILB. I do have some bones to pick on that one. A banner showing the history of the flooding at the ballpark, and even a list of the best bears in, well, bear with me on this one, Bearstery. Get it? It's history and bears put together. But Jess agrees on this one. Porter is the best. 
They advertise the ballpark as the place where fun makes the difference, and it shows. From a pregame home run derby before every game, to folks like Kyle the Juggler. They even have their own spirit group, the Mac Daddies. Ripped dudes in jean shorts and jerseys from the Growler's alternative identity, the Mac Daddies entertaining the crowd. We even got some local flavor with the cute local dance class entertaining us from the infield. And of course, a full-fledged kid zone with inflatables. Well, it's a dugout dancing, fire juggling kind of fun. Baseball's about a lot of things. For me, it's a time to reflect on what matters. It's building bridges, even between these two guys. It's about the fans who love their teams and their host family brothers. It's about learning the answers to life's great questions. And it's about the time with the one you love the most, no matter what lies in front of you on life's path or behind it. So when you're out and about on your ballpark travels, definitely make sure you make a stop to the zoo. You won't regret it. Holler and a swaller, a chug of ballpark brew, presented by The Hitter Sports. Hey, we're back here with Holler and a Swaller, brought to you by The Hitter Sports. You guys got to follow The Hitter Sports on Twitter. He's talking movies, he's talking baseball and the Yankees. He had a pretty funny tweet about Garrett Cole the other day. I definitely recommend checking out. You know what? We'll put it up here. This is the content you come to from The Hitter Sports. But right now I'm standing next to Astros legend Dallas Keuchel, who has made the best beards in the MLB sign out here at the Kalamazoo Growlers. But this is Holler and a Swaller, which means it's about alcohol. And they've got a great selection of local beer out here from Kalamazoo. I'm having the Oberon by Bell's Brewery from here in Kalamazoo. We're having a great time. They are fighting off the rain. We are hoping to get the rest of the baseball game in. But so far, it's been a blast. Hope you're enjoying your, your day and your week of watching baseball. So until next time, Holler and a Swaller, baby. On deck, the Let's Get To interview. Brought to you by Marco Fine Arts. All right, so we are so excited to be welcome to friend of the show. He is back, folks, John Fitzgerald of the Irish Baseball Society and, of course, the creator of Playing for Peanuts. So that's what we want to talk about first because you and I are both filmmakers. Um, first of all, what prompted you to come up with, well, tell us the, the, the elevator pitch for Playing for Peanuts and where it came from. Well, thanks for having me on, Jim. Um, so uh, in 2004, I actually made a documentary. It was my first uh, full-length film, and it was about baseball in Ireland. So the elevator pitch for playing for peanuts was kind of like, why not do the same thing in the U.S. and, and do it with independent baseball? So that, that, was, that was kind of the idea. I wanted to keep the momentum going. And um, the South Coast League had just announced plans to start up for the 2007 season. And I contacted them and a bunch of other leagues and South coast was just all about it. They said, you, you know, you can follow a team, you could do whatever you, you need to do. So that that's how it all started. I think it's interesting too, that it's South coast league because there's a, there's a momentum to the show. And I think um, one of the things I like about the show is it's a documentary, but it's fun. There's some quirkiness to it. I love that there's a certain, I don't know if it's intentional, but 1980s vibe to the opening sequence. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like it hits me, everything I love about it. But you also really exposed, I think, 
some of the issue with a lot of these independent leagues in the sense that they really weren't ready to play baseball. Right. That, that was not intentional. That, you know, the, the idea was to go in, um, I called it a reality show from the start. I learned pretty quickly what like the difference is. I mean, I, I made a documentary before I knew what a documentary was. I figured we were going to, this was going to be episodic. Um, it was going to be a show. So let's call it a reality show. Um, but it really at heart was a documentary and, um, we tried to tell the story as it was happening. And, and that was the big thing that we didn't expect. I mean, we figured this league would be around, you know, five, 10, 15 years and beyond. Um, everything that was being said about how it was set up was, was positive. Um, all the major league guys that were involved, like Wally Backman, um, Cecil Fielder, Phil Plantier, they seemed to think that this was a long-term league. And um, we went in thinking we were going to shoot it on spec and by the time we got to the end of it, there'd be season two and, you know, it would be sold. And um, that didn't quite happen. Let's talk about that then. Um, what I love about it is Backman's as shocked as you were that it didn't work out. And I'll give you an analogy that, 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 that the, the league itself reminded me of. It reminded me of all those derpy film festivals that exist, right? That they, they, they talk a good game and then you show up and it's like, yeah. What is this? Um, at what point in the process did Backman ever confide in you or did you guys start to think that this really isn't working out um, the way that you thought it would as far as the league's longevity? Oh, wow. That, um, that's a great question. I don't remember a specific instance, but I do remember by the end of the first two or three weeks, there were rumblings that, that things were not going well. Um, and, and those things really manifested themselves later in the season. But the first, the first part of it was um, there's a team called the Bradenton Juice, and you don't ever see their ballpark. The reason is I, I think the Peanuts played there once. Our crew didn't get to that game. It was early in the season. We were still kind of trying to feel our way out uh, through the, you know, the, the production process. Um, we figured we'd catch Bradenton the next time the Peanuts went through. And by the time that happened, um, the Bradenton, I guess they couldn't sell beer and they couldn't do fireworks. So the league pulled oh. the team. Yeah. So, so the league, the league had, didn't line that up and, and they pulled the team out of the stadium and they made them a road team. So the team existed after that, but it, they had no, they had no place to live. They had no ballpark. It was um, a, a really big red flag early on. Um, and, and Getting back to, to what you said about, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, comparing it to, to um, you know, smaller film festivals and things like that, it, you know, you, you hear like rags to riches stories about these business ventures, whatever they may be. And like, you know, we didn't know, we kind of faked it till we, we made it and that sort of thing. And um, this was one of the instances where it, it just wasn't there or, or maybe some things were there. I, you know, I still think that the planning to a large extent was there. But um, it kind of fell apart when things didn't go perfectly. And, um, All right. you know, I think it could have just as easily have worked out if, you know, I, I don't know what would have needed to happen, but maybe a, a big name guy coming through to play um, or, or maybe, you know, something with, with Wally, um, you know, getting ejected or, or something like, like there, there were op opportunities, but there just wasn't enough momentum to, to, to bring this through the season. And then this, the league kind of hung on. Uh, through the off season. And then it just kind of folded before the next season, but there were, there were red flags all along. And I should say too, for the audience, I mean, obviously um, people that watch the show know that we are big fans of independent baseball. The Atlantic league is an amazing league. So is the yeah. American association. Like not all 
independent leagues stumbled into this one, you are, are stumbled like this one. It's just sort of weirdly lined up. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about narrative structure for a second, sure. because I'm a filmmaker as well, but I don't have the patience you have, or maybe the vision that you have the idea to go into something, shooting something, creating your vision, kind of how it's going. Cause you have to go where the story goes. Um, how difficult was that? Or were, were you guys always like, every couple of days getting together saying, this is the path we think we're on, or was it all done in post? I mean, how did you shape the season long narrative? Um, coming into it from uh, right off the, the documentary that I made in Ireland, uh, there, there were certain themes that, that I wanted to, to kind of get across. You know, the, the, there was the, the grizzled veteran, the rookie, um, the coaches, and, and what, what are their motivations? Because, you know, I, I thought the league was going to last. Um, I wanted the league to last. And, and I think everybody did. And, and that was um, that was something that I think was another theme, which which is to say that, um, you know, why did why did the fans come out on day one? What's the backstory in, in South Georgia? You had in Albany, Georgia, you had uh, a rich history of minor league baseball, um, but also a, a, a pretty checkered history of teams leaving. And you know, why would a fan come out there? But then also, you know, why is the, the kid straight out of college traveling to Albany, Georgia from, you know, anywhere in the country to, to play on this team for not a lot of money? They realistically don't, you know, have a chance of getting signed or, or getting obviously getting to the majors. Um, why are the coaches there? So it was like that, that backstory of the motivation. Everybody had their own story of how they got there and why they continued playing. And that was that was really the driving force as far as putting together the story. Um, that was something that was just kind of jotted on the back of like, you know, napkins at uh, continental breakfast as we were going along, like, you know, and it became obvious early on that, that Wally Backman's arc was going to be the main arc of the team. Um, we got really lucky that certain things happened where that arc and the team's arc were, were pretty much in sync. I mean, the team believed in Wally, um, as his fortunes, you know, rose and fell and rose again. The team's fortunes did as well. Um, he was getting guys signed left and right. Yeah. Team loved them. Um, we didn't go in trying, we certainly weren't trying to make any part of that story happen or hide any of it. But the fact that the story of the team and the story of Wally were so in sync, um, it made the overall arc of the story really, uh, I think, accessible to people and less complex because we weren't trying to tell a story about, you know, like um, there was a, a backup catcher, Tug Gillingham. And uh, Tug was, I mean, all these guys could talk about baseball really well. They're very, very smart guys, um, both on and off the field. Um, Tug has gone on to become a, um, an amateur coach. Uh, he's a high school coach. He's, I think he coached a little bit of college. Uh, very uh, representative of the rest of the team. They have very high baseball IQ. Uh, but Tug is a great example. Didn't get a lot of playing time, but was a big member of the team. I mean, he was always out in the bullpen, you know, working with the pitchers. Um, take an extra BP and, and worked really hard, even though, you know, he wasn't starting catcher. Um, if there was an injury or, or whatever, Tug stepped up, never complained. Um, there was no disgruntled player on the team. And if there was, it was dealt with. And, and I don't even remember off the top of my head if there even was. Um, so the team was, was really all in. And as things started to happen in the league and then in the communities around it, the, the, uh, um, you know, the league what you saw was the peanuts became the most hated team in the league yet we we had already done, done such a deep dive on who these guys were why they were there 
why they stuck together so close that that became really the conflict was the peanuts were the they were the 86 Mets essentially I was gonna um, say um I'm yeah. staring at a Houston Astros 1986 NL West championship so the fact that you had Backman on the show and I kept watching shows my faith not only in you but also uh we're actually a really good friend of the show is Tug's dad turns out Don Gillingham so yeah it's it's uh but yeah like you're right they were the 86 Mets yeah, and, and that wasn't intentional. That just kind of happened. I mean, there were there were guys from all across the country, and um, they were playing in the deep south. There were guys from the deep south that were on that team, and um, you know that the, the community loved the team, but the other the other cities they did they hated the peanuts, and, and that helped the league, I think, because when they went to Macon, I mean, the place was packed. Um, they went back to Albany. You know, I, I think the big problem there were structural problems. Um, the community loved the team. They loved the players. Um, they didn't have a grandstand over the bleachers and in the middle of July and August in, um, yeah, South Georgia, like I heard complaints from the league, um, you know, and they were, they were valid complaints about how nobody was showing up to the games and, and, you know, the league couldn't do anything about that. Um, the city wanted them there, but you know, it just, the grandstand, there was no overhang over the bleachers. And, no and that's, one, that's just such a logistical problem that the league, yeah. the city, the players, nobody could overcome things like that. Um, and I think those are the types of things that, that you know, were really, really unfortunate. I do think, um, and, and this is a compliment to your filmmaking, I think that you let the story develop, which is why none of it felt forced. And, you know, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Backman rant because it's, it's, it's a hilarious um, it's B something that I've seen, um, replicated. I think it might be the Kalamazoo growlers have a little kid who kind of will reenact parts of it, including the taking the bats out. One oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Um, when you're watching that and you're obviously documenting it and, and the more, the more absurd part about it is how it was dealt with, not the, I mean, and you guys get into that in the show and I don't want to spoil that, but is there any part of you that's like watching this going from a producing standpoint? this could be viral and this could be the thing that maybe pushes our show over the edge, or is it just, are you just back there capturing it trying to keep it, you know, I, I don't, what's your mindset there in that moment while it's happening? My, my thought as it was happening was thank God we picked up our, uh, our DP at the airport this morning because <laughs> his flight came in. And I think, I don't remember the logistics. He would remember a uh, guy's name is Bill Winters. He's, he's uh, he works on, you know, big shows, he works on films. I mean, he's fantastic. We, we, we played Little League together. Um, so Bill was a big part of not only the, the crew and, and filming, but also finding other crew members that were really talented. And for whatever reason, I think I think I was alone that day or, or I might've been there with my brother to start the game. It was 11 a.m. game and Bill was coming in. Um, I think he flew into Atlanta and we had to pick him up. Somebody had to pick him up. So I was there with the B camera running the show um and you know my camera work is shoddy at best and and uh bill showed up about an inning before i think and i still had my camera if you go online you can find my camera work and it, like at some point uh in the middle of this as i'm thinking like wow thank god bill got here because now it's actually going to be captured by a competent you know camera operator um you can also find mine because i was like well you know what i might as well get another angle so i start shooting and there's a photo of me standing next to backman with a you know a camera looking like a moron and and uh but but bill bill just you know he captured the whole thing um you know the the, the footage looks great um you know but we weren't really thinking of going viral now i think that the next day or that afternoon or at some point right after 
Um, I did get a call from the league and they wanted me to send the footage to ESPN. And I, I just flat out refused. I said, listen, yeah, you've pitched this show to ESPN. They've passed. I'm not giving them free content. Um, I'm not also going to tell them that there's a price tag on it because there's not. If people want to see the show, they can see the show. And that's it. At, the, at that time, we had no idea if the show was actually ever going to get done, but uh, yeah. you know, I, I had to stick to my guns. We couldn't just give it, give something away because, you know, ultimately, if, if, if we gave that away, there's, there's another facet of that, which is um, people are going to take it out of context and make Backman look bad. And, and I feel like that happened anyway, but that wasn't intentional. It did uh, happen. But, and I think yeah. that's why I want people to watch the show. And I know we watched it on Amazon. Um, we'll put links where people can find it. But yeah, I think that when you when you watch it in context that was a guy that had really been pushed too far too many different ways and the way they tried it i love the fact that you again you're doing a documentary so you you did your job of making sure the full context is outlined and it's not just a little bit of youtube clip of the meltdown um before we wrap up we have a few minutes left i want you to dive back into the irish baseball um the Irish Baseball Society, everything that's happening with that Irish American Baseball Society, I should say. Um, you guys do a lot of great stuff as far as just growing the game. So kind of update us um, since your last time you've been on talking about it. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we, uh, we've we continued, you know, we have a lot of different things going on. We're, we're supporting um, baseball programs right now in Northern Ireland to bring uh, baseball into schools. And, and so that's a, that's a really kind of an entry level baseball. You know, we give the kids, um, we really start with kickballs. Um, but also wiffle ball bats and wiffle balls and, and just try to get them in the, in the habit of, you know, playing the, the game or something as close to it as a, you know, um, a, a phys ed class can handle yeah. uh, when they don't really have a background in it. Um, but uh, we're also doing a lot of historical research um, and, and that really takes two paths. We're trying to find as much as we can on the, um, the existence of baseball in Ireland through the 19th, uh, late 19th century and through the 20th century. Uh, it's really colorful history um, and we keep finding more evidence of baseball either being tried or being fairly successful in communities and then dying out um, and then we, we do a lot of stuff on the ancestry of, of uh, players so um, you know players that, that you know played today or played in the 50s and 60s and, and we go back and we try to find out you know where their great-grandparents came from and so you know it's such a rich you know cross-section or, or crossover between irish american history and baseball and, and we're just trying to explore it and, and find um you know find out what we can about you know how these these things came to be we're proud members of it as well as you know um i also love that brian mctaggart is a proud member of the astros beat writer proud member of the society um it, it, how helpful is it when people are just loud and proud about about their their irish ancestry and then also being part of the society it's great. I mean, I mean, you know yourself. Like, there, there's a lot of people that are kind of really, you know, questioning their uh, their belief in baseball at this point. And, and if we can kind of just show them, like, you know, there's this this long history, and it doesn't. It's not just you know Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and and you know the the the, the guy Ted Williams. Like, there, there's an actual family connection that you have to this kind of stuff. And and um, sometimes just like the the stories of these random, we call them Irish baseball legends that nobody's heard of will, you know, kind of just like be like a, a spark for somebody to, to, you know, learn more about their favorite team or, or learn more about baseball in their area, which, you know, that, that's another big thing for us and for our parent organization, Baseball United. Um, it's the community baseball, you know, at ethos of like, you know, 
baseball was played in towns and cities and, and before it became a big professional, you know, thing juggernaut that it is today, which is yeah. where kind of a lot of the problems are ha happening. You know, guys used to play for factory teams. They used to play in mill towns. They used to travel across the country. And, and we're trying to kind of, you know, reconnect people to that history. Um, and, and using Irish heritage to do that is one way to do it. Um, but also just, you know, just telling them that, Hey, somebody with your last name or your grandmother or mother's last name, um, was it was a great ball player and, and nobody knows about this guy and, and here's the story and, and people really resonate with that so we've, uh, we've had a pretty you know fun ride so far this year we'll have to have you back on in about a month and a half or so to talk baseball united he is john fitzgerald he is the creative mind behind playing for peanuts you can find it on Amazon, anywhere else, John, that you can think of off the top of your head, we'll put a bunch of links down so people can find it. Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's on Vimeo. Um, Amazon's the best place to find it. Um, you, you can buy the uncensored DVD or you can stream the uh, the censored version, which is the broadcast version. Oh, I'm going to definitely go buy that uncensored version. He's also the creator <laughs> of the Irish American Baseball Society. Thanks so much for jumping on Let's Get Two. Thanks, Jim. Have a great day. Let's Get Two presents Inside the Bat Cave with the Keen Swamp Bats. And it is time, and I'll be honest, Kevin, this is my favorite segment to introduce to go into the bat cave to talk a little <laughs> swamp bat baseball. Um, you guys are putting the swamp in swamp bats. Uh, how's it been over there? I know it's been a little soggy. You know, uh, I, I call it the winter, uh, the summer from hell. Uh, we've had seven rainouts, and we're only halfway through. That's between home and away. Uh, and in the NECBL, we're committed to playing every game. We uh, even if it has to be a doubleheader, uh, we do not end the season short of our 42 game schedule. Seven games out of 21. I'm no math major, but that's a big chunk so far. Oh, that's uh, that's painful. It's painful on so many levels. Uh, economics, because, hey, we, we don't we don't draw the crowds uh, on a rain out night. Economics, because on a makeup date, we don't draw as big a crowd. Yeah. Econ I mean, on our players, I mean, they want to play. They're here to play. They're not here to sit. At, at their host family, they want to play. So um, uh, I'll give our coaching staff credit for keeping them engaged, motivated and all that as, as you know, as evidenced by our record. Yeah. We'll get to the record in one second. Um, real quick though. Like, so you guys are doing some double headers. I mean, I'm assuming you're playing real double headers. Or are you playing Manfred double headers? <laughs> we are doing uh, Rob Manfred doubleheaders, two sevens. We always have played uh, a nine and a seven. This year they went to two sevens. Uh, I don't like I don't like seven inning games. Uh, particularly, um, I feel like every time we take the field, we're the best team on the field. And uh, seven seven inning games are it's an advantage for the uh, for the inferior team. And I say that kindly. I mean, I think it's a disadvantage for the best team. I uh, but I'll be honest with you. I I, I think that at all levels. And I, and and look, our, our our audience knows that seven inning double headers have long been a tradition in minor league baseball. Um, it's why I wasn't super shocked when they came to the pro level because you guys are content with different things. You've got college players on pitch counts and, and, and things like that. You know, minor league players have 12 hour long bus rides. So there's different reasons why that is, but it does seem like um, when you don't have to test the depth of the other team, anyone can roll out nine good players. It's the difference from 10 to 25 that makes you a better team or not. That's such a great point. It really is. And, you know, the other thing is an entertainment value. I think fans 
only can handle so many innings. And, and, and even myself, if I go to a pro game, I can't handle, I have trouble handling nine innings, 14 innings. I mean, count me out. So <laughs> volunteers, I mean, I, they, they're burnt out. They don't want them. Players, players really don't want to play double headers. And uh, so, so as a result, what, where's the win? So that you say you can, you played a game. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. Well, let's look at the Swamp Bats um, sitting at 16 and eight when the last this was updated, two games in the Northern Division and about a half game up over the Newport goals for best record overall. What is the strength of the Swamp Bats or is it all of it? No, I would say clearly our strength is in our pitching staff. Uh, I, and it's funny, I've always said the NECBL is about pitching and defense. So when I f- f- go first to our offense, I think we're okay on offense. We have our nights. Last night we got shut out 2 nothing. Uh, the night before we won, uh, I think, 8-4. So it depends almost on the, the arm who's throwing against us. But our, our pitching is lights out. Up and we've got 17, 18 arms. Uh, big, strong kids, big time uh, programs, View VA, Virginia, Kent State, over and over. And uh, everybody's 90, 93. And uh, so we're, we're going to be okay. And I like our defense. We make plays. Let's talk a little bit about managing that pitching staff, because that is one of the, the one areas where I know a lot of college coaches get real iffy, right? Like they right. put you guys on innings count. How, how, is, how much freedom do you have to actually manage the team uh, knowing that you do have that sometimes situation of your present day game isn't more important than making sure you keep so many throws off that kid's arm. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jim. The the biggest thing for us is number one, we start out committed to not overthrowing uh, pitchers. I mean, that's just a given. So that's why we have 17 or 18 arms on our staff at all times. But when you have that, now you have a commitment to a player who's come here from somewhere in the country to pitch, not to sit not to be a backup. So we, it isn't unusual for us to throw five pitchers in a night. And, and we might lose a game because of that, because we're giving that player who maybe hasn't pitched enough or at school or whatever, and maybe he's not quite ready, but he needs to throw innings here in Keene, New Hampshire. So it isn't unusual. Uh, it happens often. five guys. Hey, maybe the starter only goes three or four, but he knows he's getting that one start every week. He's good with it. We know we got a closer and a setup guy at the end, but we've got to work those two middle guys in in the middle so that everybody's getting their work. And you're exa- and, and if this isn't the case of I, I can imagine some people who don't understand how collegiate summer league baseball work going. Oh, everyone gets a chance to play, but that's the point. Your point is to develop these guys so that right. way they might get drafted um, down the road. Right. Hey, because I, I have a lot of people locally in our small town and wanting to know why the Swamp Bat players come here. And I tell them, and, and it's the same. I said, it doesn't matter if it's the kid from Princeton or the D3 kid or the kid from Vanderbilt. They're here for the same reason. They want to play pro ball. And they need to be here to develop their game with wood to reach that next level. That's why every kid's here. So that's what we have to commit to them, playing time at all at, at every position. At every position. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about as we wrap up just what the season's been like so far. I know we're going to check in with you with you in another couple of weeks, but um, overall, what's the vibe in Keene? How glad are they to have you guys back? <laughs> I always wondered, uh, 
two because really it was almost two years since we won the championship back in August of 2019. And uh, I wondered, would our fans come back two years? Did they create different habits? But from opening night, our crowds have been strong. They're back. They're excited. They're excited to be outside. And they're excited to be outside at a Swamp Bat game. So our attendance is strong and our product is strong. And so it's a combination that's led uh, hey, to what we envisioned. So you guys are about halfway through. I mean, any, any like, I'm assuming confidence is high for both the playoff berth and possibly a back-to-back championship? I, you know, I, our fans always focus on the W. And it's funny. I always thought that they would love us, even if we lost, that we would be like the good news bears, that we were lovable. And what I found out in 019 was, no, they really want us to win. And so uh, I think people are confident in us. Uh, we just uh, we they just did the selections for the league all stars. We got seven players out of uh, 28 uh, on the all star team in a seven team league. So we feel pretty good about that's that's really uh, that, that that tells you how good, strong our talent is. And uh, we, we put a, we're putting a great product on the field every night. It's exciting. We hit some home runs now and then, and we we flat out throw the throw the ball. Let's talk a little bit about that as we wrap up. Then the I did saw it was really cool that the, um, the it matters to these players if they make this All Star team. Like they, it matters, and I could tell on social media that it does. It really does. Many of them are focused. And we had a we had a kid who was who wanted to be he's a he's a he's going to be a fifth year senior at UConn kid named Zach Bushling, California kid. He wanted to make this all star team. He was hitting about 250 with uh, five games prior to the vote, got himself up to 290. And he's going to be uh, the starting second baseman or no, the number two second baseman, the all star game. That's an example that's prevalent throughout our roster. I love hearing that. He is Kevin Watterson. He is the guy behind the Keen Swamp Bats. Thanks again for so much for jumping on Let's Get Two. Hey, see you guys. Show me the merch. The best from the pro shop. And welcome to Show Me the Merch. And if it looks like I'm just a huge fan of the Starcourt Mall, that I'm the guy that went and bought gear from the mall, well, it's because I am. I'm actually wearing the Durham Bulls look for Stranger Things Night, the Stranger Things weekend that's happening the weekend that this episode drops. And the Durham Bulls have always done Stranger Things weekend. And they've always done it really cool. But this is a look that I absolutely love. I'm a child of the 80s. I'm a child of that flashback look. And so I love the pullover jersey. I love that we've got the hot pink and the black and the, the cool lowercase look. And of course, even behind the big D, the Starcourt Mall logo. This stuff is all available for sale, which is another thing that Durham Bulls do that's really cool. You can actually go buy this stuff. Sometimes it's simply worn by the players and you have to hopefully win an auction. But you can go to DurhamBulls.com, you can click on shop and get this really great stuff just in time for Stranger Things Season 4, whenever that comes. And now, let's get to, of that, a look at Ballpark Eats. When we started this segment... We told you we were going to go to parks, try different foods, give you suggestions on what you want to try if you make it out there yourself, talk to the people who make it and put it together, and also we're going to bring home, come home, and give you ideas that you might want to have for gatherings, hanging out, having some beers, or just sitting down and watching a ball, ball game and giving you that kind of ballpark feel. This week, I recreated a dish that you can find down in Madison, Alabama. 
home of the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Now it's kind of aptly named. You throw a bunch of stuff in, and it seems like everything's stuck. Today, on Let's Get Two of That, we have the Dumpster Wrap. This is the Dumpster Wrap. It's pretty much a quesadilla with a chili cheese dog and fries inside with a kick. So I started with the fries. The reason for this is because I'm air frying them and it takes a little bit longer. Now feel free to use any fryer you'd like. Seriously, any fryer you'd like. I cooked the fries at 400 for 25 minutes in our air fryer. Next step, instead of going with the crispy jalapeno like the original recipe calls for, I decided to go with just a pickled jalapeno for a little more heat. So I minced these into a relish and there we go. Next we cooked the hot dogs. As you know, hot dogs don't take long no matter how you cook them. I prefer to grill mine. So, a little editing magic, boom. Now you can put your cooked hot dogs in a place to keep them warm. We'll be using those here in a few minutes. So the recipe calls for a house-made chili. Just for time and this recipe, we tried just a regular hot dog chili. So now we want to do the quesadilla. Start with a large tortilla used for usually burrito. Uh, here in Texas, we're fortunate to have a lot of high-quality tortillas that are just accessible from anywhere. Um, but just the best thing you can find at your store is good. Now, you don't want to do a super elaborate quesadilla. It's just a plain cheese quesadilla. It's a thin layer of cheese, another tortilla, cook on one side, let it start getting gooey, flip, do the same thing, and take it off. At this point, our fries should be extra crispy if you used an air fryer. Now, you take the fries, you're gonna pour your chili into there, and let's get it mixed up really nicely, get good coverage on all those fries with that chili you made. Uh, that's the idea of it being extra crispy. Now, we're ready to compile our dumpster wrap. Now for the first step of compiling it, the recipe calls for a Chipotle Ranch Bandito sauce. So I found, probably maybe the next best thing, but a smoked ancho chili ranch sauce. It's a really a smoky, spicy ranch. So spread that all over your tortilla. Uh, next step is you're going to be your jalapeno, the jalapeno relish, relish you made. Spread it around as much as you could. I probably could have put a little more, but hindsight's 2020. Um, and then we add our fries. Fries, spread them out. You want to make sure that you get kind of a, a nice layer of fries so when you put your hot dogs in, you can wrap everything up together. And then, speak of the devil, here comes the hot dogs. Now, once you get those nicely placed, wrap everything up, pin it with toothpicks so it stays together, and you're ready to eat. Well, here it is, the dumpster wrap. As you can see, not too complicated, just a little bit of prep. Um, kind of different ingredients going different directions. But really, sit down, it'll only take you about 25, 30 minutes, the time it takes to put it to do the fries in the air fryer. So, let's see how we did. Let's get two of that. Thank you, Trash Pandas. And now, on to close it out, the right-hander from Houston, Texas, James Christopher. And so that does wrap up this episode of Let's Get To. I'm hanging out with my buddy Porter. We're out here at the Kalamazoo Growlers, and we had a great time. We want to thank everybody for having us out, uh, for being so welcoming to us. Again, we had a great time out here at the ballpark. We hope that you're having a good time, uh, enjoying some baseball, enjoying some family. But most importantly, I hope that you're having some fun, 
Hope you're getting some peanuts and some Cracker Jack. And again, let's get to. Right, Porter? <laughs>